Cassie Collins and the Wild Shamrock, an Affinityverse story. A Theme Park Mysteries Series 1 prequel. Written by D.B. Green and A.K. Stein. Narrated by Amanda K. Stein. Saturday, July 14th, 2018. Unknown time. Christy Walsh, unknown location. Just who the hell is Cassie Collins? I lean forward and grasp Kate's hands, my whole body flinching instinctively against the sound of her words echoing off the sterile white walls surrounding us, trapping us. Keep your voice down, I whisper, pleading. Kate drags her hands away, her eyes darting left and right as if she expects someone to leap out of nowhere and reprimand us, or worse. I can't say I'm not expecting the same thing. I let go of Kate's hands and lean back, trying to relax in my chair, but it's impossible. As soon as I try to calm myself, I notice two pairs of receptive, narrow eyes from the next table focusing on us, owned by two new blues that I don't recognize. Despite their newness, I know exactly who they belong to. Two more paid nurses. Nurses that can somehow leave this place. Nurses that have loved ones they can return to. The blues look me up and down, like I'm a manky piece of garbage that needs throwing out. I tilt my chair back slightly and stare the blues down, until they look shyly at their own hands. Even after their irises have dropped, I can't resist snapping at them. Would you like an autograph, I ask, still glaring at them. I feel a prickly sense of shame over it, but it makes me furious whenever anyone looks at me like that. Like I'm not the brilliant icon I'm usually seen as. Was seen as. Both women scrunch up their faces and return to eating their food, still with snooty expressions on their holy joel faces as they chew their dry cafeteria sandwiches. I'm used to these snide looks and the gossip about me in this place, especially from the blues, but I can't stop myself from getting emotional over it. But I have to push it aside. I have to focus, if I want any real hope of getting out alive. I return to the gaunt face of Kate Barton sitting across from me. I know her well, as well as I know anyone else in this godforsaken place. She's a kidnapped nurse from Cincinnati, a purple nurse, like me, trapped in a prisoner in the hellish place, like me. Her tired eyes drift back to me, the fight long since defeated in them. I wonder if there's any still showing in mine. I have to believe so. I have to think I have enough left in me to pull this off. The problem is, I can't do it without Kate. I've learned the hard way I can't manage this alone. Not if I want to survive. I take a deep breath, trying to speak softly, but with enough conviction to reignite the fire inside Kate. The fire I can sense must have once burned bright. Cassie Collins is someone else whose life was ruined by Gabriel Lockwood. Reaching forward, I gently grasp Kate's hands again, tracing my thumbs along the cracked skin of her worn fingers. And she was a reporter, an investigative reporter, at the top of her game. I glance to the left to check that the blues aren't listening. Thankfully, they seem preoccupied with some article in a gossip magazine. I try to shake off the envy of whoever is featured in it, whoever's life is now consumed as eagerly as mine once was. Cassie Collins was hell-bent on bringing Gabriel down. Kate's lips curl into a small, shaky smile, but it fades almost instantly, like her face can't quite remember how to maintain any look of happiness, of hope. There's an awful lot of was in what you just said. Her voice sounds even smaller than normal, as if allowing herself to become optimistic for even a fraction of a second has drained what little energy she has. She exposed my relationship with Gabriel. It was a worldwide front-page story. I pulled down my purple tunic a little, exposing the heart tattoo on my chest. I gingerly but firmly press my finger to it, as if it's a deadly insect crawling over my skin, one that I'm desperate to crush without scaring off first. That's why he gave me this curse, and that's why he ruined her career.
Kate backs away a little at the sight of the tattoo. Her eyes open wide as she follows its outline made up of strange words, words none of us quite understand. But why would this Cassie Collins help us? She lowers her voice to a whisper, glancing around at the next table. Buckwood's already ruined her. What good could she do? And even if she could help, surely she wouldn't want to get mixed up in all... This? Dragging out the last word, Kate glances up at the weird eye pattern on the ceiling, the same pattern that's on all the ceilings in this place. I've had hundreds of reporters chase me, a lifetime's worth of them, but none had the tenacity of Cassie Collins, nor the desire for justice that she has. I close my eyes as the memory of the Metro Press headline that exposed my affair with Senator Lockwood sends the coldest chills down my spine. If anyone can lift the lid on this place, it's Cassie Collins. Kate's eyes open even wider. But how will you find her? I glance across at the blues on the next table, at the trashy gossip magazine they're laughing at. The memory of a similar magazine jumps into my mind, the one I had grabbed before the blues a few weeks ago, a magazine with an article called The Fall of Cassie Collins, the article that sowed the seeds of my impending escape. She's working in Orlando now, I see, hoping Kate will pick up on the importance of this. Orlando, Florida, Kate asks, then leans in closer to me. As in Lockwood's hometown? I nod. Like I said, tenacity. A hint of another smile flashes across Kate's face, only this one stays longer than the last. It gives me a surge of adrenaline, of hope that she'll be up for what's to come. But how in the hell are you going to get to Orlando? I grip her hands more firmly, willing her to connect with me. I'll find a way, believe me but I need your help to get out of this place first. Kate bites her lips several times, opening and closing her mouth between each nip. It's like she's having a silent conversation with herself. Then, suddenly, she nods. Okay, I'll help. I can't stand it here any longer. Her eyes flash with a burst of determination, only to immediately be replaced by restless panic. What do I have to do? I squeeze her hands in gratitude, then press on. Her frantic eyes have warned me that I have to give her all the information now, before she backs out or melts down. I need a diversion, I say, glancing at the four-period shift clock on the cafeteria wall behind her. Not just any diversion. It has to be big enough to need Gabriel's attention. His urgent attention. Kate nods again. Having a task seems to steady her. Color returns to her paler cheeks, along with a glint of resolve shining in her eyes. I know the perfect thing to get his attention. You need to be exact in your timing, though, I say, glancing at the clock again. I don't have long left. I broke my contract, and Gabriel is coming for me in thirty minutes. Kate's mouth opens in a perfect circle, like she's seen a ghost. How do you know the time? I don't know the exact time, but... I carefully slide my hand back on the table and turn it over, showing her a slender, gold watch hidden in my palm. I press it into her shaking hand. I do have this. She stares at the watch, unsure how to react, unsure what would happen if she was caught with it. Watches are banned in this place, like contraband in prison. They are contraband in prison. Don't worry, it's insanitized, I say, but hide it, quickly. Kate's shaking hand slips the watch into her pocket. The gravity of what she's about to do, the consequences of what she's about to do, are overriding the glint of resolve I saw in her eyes just now. It fades again, until her eyes look as dead and afraid as when she first sat down at our table. I've got a watch too, I whisper, trying to push through her fear, trying to remind her we're together in this. I've synced their times. 
Kay presses her hands to her pocket. Where did you get them? Aki got them from the customers. I pause, checking we're still unobserved, before their possessions were incinerated. Kate smiles, a hint of hope coming back into her eyes. I pounce on it before it can fade again. Time your diversion for ten past one on the watch. It shouldn't be longer than two minutes after that until Gabriel is notified. Then I'll make my move. Kate nods, then she lets go of my hand and reaches for my upper arm instead, squeezing tight. I force myself to not wince from the pain, using all my old acting skills to keep the calm smile on my face. Don't leave me down here. Please. Don't worry, Kate, I say, still using my previous life experience as a charismatic confidence oozes through my voice. A confidence I don't feel at all. I'm going to save us all. Unknown time. Christy Walsh. Unknown location. I try to remain calm as Aki moves between the beds, checking on the comatose patients. They're all prisoners down here, just like his purples. Aki Lin, a fellow purple nurse and a survivor of a barbaric experiment, stops by the metal filing cabinets next to the desk. She leans to the right, glancing through the large observation window set in the wall, then drags her finger across the spines of some worn Harry Potter books that stand on top of the cabinet. You know, my agent passed on a role in those movies, I say, recalling one of my deepest regrets, anything to distract me from the tension racing through my mind. He thought it was beneath me. I shake my head at the huge mistake Morris McCauley made. Accepting that offer would have rejuvenated my career, would have given me a new life in a way that wasn't sick, sadistic, evil. He wouldn't even tell me what part it was. Aki spins around to face me, holding one of the books in her hands. Whatever the part, I'm sure you would have been wonderful, she says in her immaculate English accent. To hear Aki, you'd never realize she couldn't speak a word of English before she was kidnapped, before the procedure went wrong and she was left with the memories and a knowledge of another woman, a customer. Now, Aki Lin speaks better English than me, and I spent years honing my diction with the best linguist the world could offer. I notice the title of the book in her hands. The Prisoner of Azkaban, I say, a savagely fitting title. She half smiles, then opens the book, pulling out a small envelope hidden inside. It's a letter, for a family friend, she says, stroking the envelope with her thumb. It will let my family know I'm okay, discreetly. Aki passes me the letter but retains a grip, not wanting to let it go. It's okay, Aki, I'll take good care of it. I check the name of the letter as I hide it inside my tunic. Laura Morrison. She's a family friend, Aki says defensively, noticing that I check the name and address. Don't worry, I say, tapping the letter through my tunic. I'll make sure I mail it straight away. Aki takes a deep breath, and I realize in this moment the face she has in me. If I get caught, she will be implicated too, along with Kate. Suddenly, I feel my body overwhelmed by the weight of what I'm about to do, of how many lives will be ended if I fail. This is our last chance, Aki says, narrowing her eyes and staring straight into mine, as if she can read my thoughts. Your last chance. She rubs at her arm under her tunic. You broke the contract. Your lucky Lockwood delayed your termination this long. Lucky he still has feelings for you. I know. My mind replays the last three visits from Gabriel. Three chances to sign a new contract. Three chances to get my life back. It would be so easy to step back into that life. So easy to go back to being the adored and ravishing wild shamrock. But how can I ignore everything I found out about what goes on here? About what horrors he's capable of? 
I walk between the patient beds, dragging my hands over the rough sheets. The people underneath each of them are branded with a similar curse, an enchanted curse, caused by a tattoo destined to make some wealthy old person young again, the way it made me young again. Guilt swarms through my stomach, twisting it and threatening to tear me apart from the inside. It mixes with sorrow for the poor soul that unknowingly gave up her life, all so I could be young again. I have to swallow back bile, disgusted by my sense of vanity and self-absorption. This has got to stop. Aki rattles on, relentless. All these poor peoples have families. Families that will be looking for them. Dizziness storms in my mind at the thought of family. My family. I can't stop my brother's face flashing before my eyes, no matter how hard I try to will it away. I close my eyes and fight back the pain and tears. I can't begin to imagine what he went through when they... When he... Senator Lockwood wants to see you. A blue stands in the doorway, looking around the room like it's a dirty bathroom. She turns up her nose and narrows her eyes, aiming her disgust right at me. Now! I can't help but smile at her snooty expression, her shoddy sense of superiority. I'm happy for anything to force away the memory of what happened to Colin. All the blues hate me because Gabriel loves me. And I used to love him. Until I found out what was going on here. Until he killed my brother. The nurse wraps her hand on the doorframe, stumping me back into focus. Don't keep him waiting. Again. I press my hand to the watch hidden in my pocket. Don't worry, Missy. I won't be late. Aki softly rubs her hand on my back as I leave. Good luck, she whispers. I follow the nurse down the bright white corridor. She keeps glancing over her shoulder like she's hoping I've disappeared. Wait a few minutes, Missy, and I will. I step toward her, ready to crack on, while trying to ignore the burning feeling of Aki's eyes boring into my back. The blue and I turn into a familiar corridor, one that leads to a small boardroom I know too well, a room I've been to three times in the past month, a room that holds my life in the balance. The blue stops, not wanting to go any further. She holds out her arm, indicating for me to go on without her. I take a deep breath, like I'm walking onto a movie set for the first scene. I'm about to get the performance of my life. For my life. Checking that the blue has gone, I pull out the watch and watch the seconds tick over, inching closer to one o'clock precisely. On both watches, anyway. I'm still not sure of what time it really is. Ten minutes to go. I don't bother knocking on the door. I simply turn the handle and walk in, willing my charms to be present in every step I take. Gabriel sits at the head of a small oval table, looking like a director waiting for the next fresh blood to sit on his casting couch. I swallow hard and pray that I'm able to keep up this performance, that I never break character. If I slip for even an instant, I know Gabriel will sense it. He stands up and smiles at me, taking in every inch of my form, with the same pulse-increasing smile that won my heart all those years ago. The grey flecks in his hair and beard accentuate his deeply handsome face. Gabriel Lockwood is a lady killer. I bite my lip, reproaching myself. He's a little brother killer, too. Don't ever forget it. He strolls around the table, his grey silk suit glistening in the bright light from the eye-shaped bowl on the ceiling. Christy, my dear, please tell me you've reconsidered. I need you back in my life. His voice is dripping with desire, with hunger. He smiles, staring straight into my eyes, like he's burrowing into my mind. I feel my pulse quicken, my body calling out to him the way it always did. Oscar performance, remember. I smile back, pouting my lips, doing my best to read the desire while burrowing any real feeling of it. I do want my new life back. I want to be with you again. 
I lean forward, not taking my eyes from him, letting my mouth open slightly, the way he likes. He takes the bait and leans in, kissing me. I let his warm lips press gently onto mine, and my heart beats so fiercely that I'm certain he can feel it pounding against him. Right now, in this moment, with Gabriel pressed against me, his citrus-scented aftershave teasing my senses, I could quite easily sign the new contract and actually mean it. I could go back to my old life, to our old life, and not look back. Even though he's a cad. Even though he's not what he says. Even though he's a murderer? My brother's face flashes back into my mind, and I feel my blood run cold. It takes every ounce of strength I have to stifle the sob that wants to erupt from me and keep my lips fastened to his starving ones. He finally pulls back, his lips slowly peeling away from mine. For a second, he looks longingly into my eyes, and then he smiles. I'm so sorry that you've been kept prisoner down here. I couldn't do anything about it. He wags his finger and gives me a crooked smile, his eyes glinting with a cold edge. I can't tell if he's joking or not. But you broke the rules, Christy. You broke your contract. It had to be done. Taking my hand, he directs me to the table and then pulls out the seat next to his for me to sit on. Whatever the occasion, Gabriel is always a gentleman, always the charmer. He places his white cell phone on the table. Similar to my old iPhone, but the unusual eye-shaped button under the screen always catches my attention. Swiping to the lock screen, he inputs the passcode, a passcode he doesn't think I know. 103105. In all the years I've known him, he's never changed this code. It must mean something to him, something important. A wallpaper of us both stares back at me on the screen. I look up at him with honest surprise in my eyes. Gabriel shrugs his shoulders. I missed you so much, he whispers, his voice earnest and raw. I force a smile back, trying to look touched without actually feeling it. I hope you don't have all your photos of me on there, I say, sincere fear prompting me to ask. His eyes open wide, and he smiles. No picture can ever do you justice. His eyebrow raises. Not even those pictures. He looks at me deeply, and then sighs. I had to get rid of them. It was hard to remember what I lost. I give him a soft smile as I suddenly check the time on the phone screen. It's eight minutes past four. I quickly reach into my pocket and check my watch, hanging my head in signs that he thinks I'm simply overcome with emotion. It's three hours out, but the time ticks over to nine minutes past the hour, at the exact time as the phone. One minute to go. Gabriel is barely paying attention to me anyway. He's more focused on connecting a small, round device to the bottom of his phone. A device I can never forget. He looks up, the smile totally gone from his face, all business now. This new contract is stricter than the last. If you break the conditions of this one, I can't help you, no matter how much I may want to. He glances at the photo of us on the phone screen, his voice trailing away. You will burn. I reach for his hands and grasp him tight. Don't worry, Gabe, I won't break the new contract. I lean forward and kiss him passionately, throwing all my desperation to get out, to be free into it. I'd be a fool to leave you. He smiles and adjusts his tie. You're getting me hot under the collar. Again? Don't I always? I ask, glancing at the phone. It's time. He taps the phone screen and a swirling spiral appears. It instantly decreases in size, as if an eraser is rubbing it away while following the spiral to the center, like a child running around a maze. The contract is only viable for the next two minutes, he says, panic in his voice, panic that I've only heard once before. He glances at me, 
his forehead creasing with worry. Christy. Damn it. I wasn't planning on actually signing a new contract, but I had no idea he would have his own countdown. I was so focused on my own that I never even considered it. Of course he would pressure me. Of course he would trap me. I'll have no choice. I know what it means for me. I know what my fate will be. But I have to do it. It's the only way to stop him. Even if it kills me. I reach forward and place my thumb on the centre of the round device, begging my eyes to not water, to not give away what I've just given up. It might hurt for a second, Gabriel says, gripping my arm. Make sure you keep your thumb still. I remember, I say, as the last time I did this flashes through my mind. Gabriel taps the phone screen and a sharp pain stabs at my thumb. It's like a small electric shock, a shock that hurts a hell of a lot more than last time. I bite my lip and try to read the words that flash over the top of the spiral on the phone screen. Enchanted words, Gabriel called them, like the ones on my tattoo. Gabriel breathes a sigh of relief. The new blood contract is now active. We can finally get you out of those god-awful... A blue barges into the room, interrupting him mid-sentence. Sir, there's been an incident. Gabriel takes a deep breath, holding back the anger that I know all too well festers inside him. Can't you deal with it? The blue glances at me in the back at Gabriel. It's one of the customers. You need to come. Now. The nurse takes a step back to the open door. Please, she quickly adds. With a heavy sigh, Gabriel stands from the table. He kisses the top of my head. Wait here for me, Christy, he says, his voice full of a mixture of annoyance and lust. My heart pounds hard against my chest. Kate did it, and Gabriel left the phone, just like I wanted, just like I needed. I wait a second to be certain that he's gone, then I disconnect the round device and hold up the phone. This phone is my key to getting out of this place and finding Cassie Collins. Whatever it costs me, whatever I lose, it will be worth it. It has to be. I slide the phone into my pocket and head back down the maze-like bright white corridors. Behind me, I can hear a raised voice, Kate's raised voice. She's shouting, threatening one of the customers. I shake away the knowledge what will happen to her now and run down the long corridor of numbered patient rooms, my shoes squeaking on the polished floor. If I imagine what her fate will be, I'll fall apart. I can't bear the thought of anyone else dying because of me. There have already been too many. I stop running as the door in front of me opens. Room 8. Aki steps out, and I almost crash into her. Christ on a bike, Aki! I press my hand to my pounding heart. You scare the shite out of me. Sorry, but I've got something for you. Something that will help. She shakes a large, deep red velvet drawstring bag, emblazoned with gold writing. More enchanted words. Hold out your hand, she says. I slip Gabriel's phone into my pocket and hold out my hands. Aki tips the bag and several diamond rings fall out, followed by a mound of $20 bills. At least the customers come in useful for something. These should see you through for a while. I kiss Aki on the forehead. Aki Lin, you are a right saint. I tip the rings and money into my pocket and pull out the phone again. Better sanitize this too. Aki opens the bag and I drop the phone inside. She shakes it and then passes me the phone back. Sanitized and free from magic tracking. She pauses. I hope you're right about the phone letting you cross the barrier. Worry is laced through her voice. I'll come with you. As far as the barrier, anyway. I glance back up the corridor. Okay, but let's be quick. You don't want to get caught. I can't have her die as well. I can't take it. We run down the rest of the corridor. It bends around, opening out into a large hallway. A horrible, bright, white hallway filled with five living statues. Five purple nurses, magically frozen in time. 
forever a reminder that we can never leave this place. Careful, Christy, Aki says, grasping my arm. She points at the black curved line on the shiny floor. It's a perimeter line for the magical barrier, a line that we can't get past unless we want to join the hellish living museum. I scan around the hallway, spying no exit other than the archway we just came through. But me and Aki have posted the blues leaving through here before. They can somehow pass through this barrier and leave this place. With my own eyes, I've seen them walk to the opposite wall, and then they just disappear into thin air, almost like an illusion. I unlock Gabriel's phone and hold it close to the barrier. It vibrates, and the same red spiral from before pops up, slowly being erased, the same way it was in the boardroom. A two-second countdown. A leap of faith. I take a deep breath, close my eyes, and jump across the perimeter line, not giving myself any time to think about it. I'm not frozen. I exhale slowly and open my eyes. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, I say, my voice fading away as I take in what has appeared in front of me. Now standing against the far wall is a six-paneled white door. The exit. I spin around to Aki, pointing over my shoulder at the door. There's a door. A strange white door. Do you see it? She shakes her head. It's just a wall. There's nothing there. At least not for me. I step back outside the barrier and grasp her hand. Two people shorten the road. Why don't you come with me? Her eyes are full of hope at this, a kind of wild, frantic hope that I know all too well. Before she can answer, I grasp her hand and take her with me over the barrier. What if it only... Aki's mouth freezes wide open, mid-sentence. She's frozen, like the other poor nurses trapped in the barrier. It won't work for two, I say, instantly realizing she can't hear a word I'm saying. I check the phone screen. The spiral is half gone already. Sorry, Aki, I say, as I drag her frozen body back outside the perimeter of the barrier. Works for one person, she says, finally able to finish her sentence. She looks around, bewildered at her sudden shift in position. You were right, I say, glancing at the phone. It only works for one person. Aki half smiles, resignation seeping back into her eyes. You better go. I glance across at the other nurses. If I had more time, I could pull them all out of the barrier. There's no time, Aki says, following my gaze and reading my mind. I give her a quick hug, trying to put all my gratitude and resolve into it. I'll get you all out of this place, I promise. She smiles at me, sadly, with no expectation that I'll succeed on her face. I don't blame her. I don't even know if I can do it. But I have to try. Letting go of her trailing hand, I pass back over the perimeter line into the barrier, past the frozen purples, two frozen as they try to escape, three frozen as an example to the others. Seeing them standing like a weird guard of honor sends a cold shiver down my spine. I turn away and head to the door. It looks wrong, though I can't explain why. There's just something not right about it. The fact that it is there at all scares me, giving me goosebumps along my skin. Gabriel's phone suddenly vibrates again. Not the countdown. Worried, I quickly glance at the screen as an image of the door pops up with a message. Choose your location. Under this is a drop-down box. My heart beats fast as I scroll through a list of cities. I gasp. Orlando is on the list. Will the store really take me exactly where I want to go? I highlight Orlando on the list, and a red eye flashes on the screen for a second before another message pops up. Location locked. Open the traverse. I reach for the round golden handle and turn it. The door slightly opens, and bright light almost blinds me from the other side. I don't have time to turn back to Aki. The phone has started vibrating, and the spiral is almost gone. Sprint of faith. I run through the open door, into bright, hot sunshine. A huge Ferris wheel stands in front of me, one that I instantly recognize. 
the Orlando Eye. The door did lead me to Orlando. It worked. I'm out. The phone suddenly vibrates like a racing drum beat. I cover the screen with my hand to block out the blinding reflection. The spiral is gone. I spin around, facing the door again just as it fades away, like a dream disappearing in the morning. Sunday, July 15th, 2018. 2152 GMT-5. Christy Walsh, The Myatt Hotel, Orlando. I still feel guilty about sleeping in all day. I didn't think I was that tired, but the escape from that place, combined with the shock of how I managed to escape, must have taken its toll. I guess the three bottles of wine didn't help either. Guilt swarms inside me when I think of Aki. And then Kate. Poor Kate. What will Gabriel do to her? I don't even know what all her disruption entailed, but whatever it was, Gabriel always makes an example of those who misbehave. I sit up and take a deep breath. If she's lucky, he'll throw her into that barrier thing. If she's lucky. At least if she's frozen in time, she can be unfrozen. Sliding my legs off the bed feels like I'm wading through water. My body just doesn't want to move. I glance at the empty wine bottles on the bedside table. It's been a long time since I got drunk, and since I slept in the same clothes I had been wearing. I didn't think to buy a nightdress yesterday. I was so focused on what I needed to get my job done that I barely thought of what I personally needed at all. Figures, I would finally learn how to not be selfish right when my life was due to end. My eyes water as I yawn, stretching out all the tension in my body. Wine and Orlando really took everything out of me. As if on cue, my stomach burns with hunger. I drag across the room service menu from the bedside table. Just a sandwich, I think. Eating nothing but cafeteria food is making indulging tempting, though I'm not sure I deserve it after all I've done. What I've cost people. I dial zero on the phone and a guy answers. Room service, can I take your order? I take one last glance at the menu. I'd like to order a roasted turkey club sandwich, please. With salad or fries? Salad, please. I pause a moment, the temptation surging in me again. And fries. Would you like anything to drink? The empty wine bottles twinkle in the corner of my eye, tempting me. Just a bottle of Coke, please. The guy sighs, clearly annoyed to be working the late shift. So that's a roasted turkey club with salad and fries and a Coke. Yes, that's correct. I bite my lip, hesitating. Um, and a slice of apple pie, please? When in America, after all. I feel a pang of guilt. I never let myself eat like this when I was a wild shamrock, and it's hard to undo all that self-torture. He sighs again. Now I'll be with you in 15 to 20 minutes. What's your name and room number? Holly Fairchild, room 512. The guy ends a call abruptly. I didn't expect the same glowingly warm service I was used to back in my golden days. I mean, this little rundown spot is not the kind of place I would have even considered slumming it in. But still, I do worry if I'll get what I actually ordered. At least, no matter what happens, using one of my favorite movie roles to sign into this place has brought a smile to my face. It's been so long since I really smiled. But the smile instantly drops, and my heart suddenly beats faster. Would Gabriel think to check for that? I know he'll be scouring hotels. But then again, he won't know I'm in Orlando. Aki sanitized the phone, and I turned off the GPS and the mobile data. Anyway, Gabriel will only be checking all the five-star hotels. He won't think to shake anywhere like this. Will he? I shake away my fears and walk barefoot over the thin carpet to the desk against the wall. I flip up the lid on the laptop I bought yesterday. The homepage for Orlando Wow, the company Cassie Collins now works for, stares back at me. Grasping Gabriel's phone, I take a photo of the webpage, another element from my story of a lifetime. 
Without a doubt, that is a hook that will pull in a former investigative reporter, especially one like Hassie Collins. I slide open the balcony doors and still myself for a minute, enjoying the warm air blowing across my skin. Then I unlock the phone and hit record on another audio file. What seems like decades ago, I'd accepted Orlando would be my new home. Gabriel had a set schedule. He always loved his schedules and hated it when they went wrong or were interfered with. He was going to divorce his wife, then we could go public. At the ripe old age of 63, I would have been the senator's new wife. I was resigned to life, happy to finally retire from acting. I was looking forward to a new challenge. I pause the recording and glance back at the laptop, catching sight of myself in the mirror. Now 40 years younger, give or take. I turn my hand over. The smooth skin still looks strange, like it can't really belong to me. Then I found out those two words. Those two tiny words that open Pandora's box. Meridia Falls. Gabriel liked to blame everything on you and your Metro Press expose. That front page hurt him more than you know, but it wasn't the reason behind what happened to me. I began to realize that being with a 63-year-old was not on his schedule. He took me to a clinic he's associated with. They were working on a new type of beauty product, or so I thought. A product called rejuvenation. Gabriel blinded me with science, with the promise of being 25 again, and vain, thick, desperate old me lapped up every word of it. After your story broke, everything happened in a flash. Gabriel decided to fake my death so that I could be reborn into a new, younger life. But really, it was just a way to cover his tracks. I stopped recording again to stare at my reflection. I unbuttoned my blouse just enough to expose the heart tattoo, the key to my rejuvenation. Was all this worth it? My curves returned to their former glory. My body got its vigor and beauty back. The wild shamrock herself was reborn. Warm air from outside blows across my face, snapping my attention back to the recording. I don't want to go on. I don't want to examine what I've done. I don't want to think about how badly I wanted this new body, how much better I feel in it, how much more powerful and worthwhile. Then the guilt over that poor, innocent woman, the one who lost her life to make this youth possible, fires my resolve to continue, reminding me that nothing could be worth that. I'm sorry, I got sidetracked. All these recordings, my testimony, will be a little out of order. It's like standing on the edge of a busy highway, and each speeding car is a thought I need to tell you. Right. After finding myself, impossibly, standing in front of the Orlando Eye, our icon Orlando, as it's now called, I needed to get rid of my nurse's uniform and quick. That was the only thing I had that wasn't sanitized. I was so grateful for Aki for giving me those rings and the money. I used some cash to get a cab to the nearest pawn shop. I got 5000 for all the rings. I know they were probably worth at least a hundred times that, and the guy behind the counter knew it too, but I needed more cash. I knew the bills Aki had taken from the customers wouldn't last long. First thing first, I mailed Aki's letter, then I went shopping. Necessities were a new, non-trackable outfit, purse, and laptop, as well as a hotel room. I made the conscious decision to go where Gabriel wouldn't expect, so I booked a room at the Myatt Hotel in International Drive, a far cry from the usual five-star hotels I used to stay in. But then the long grass, hidden amongst all the people on vacation, seemed like a good idea. A knock on the door interrupts a recording. I hit the stop button. Room service. I take some cash and walk over to the door. A smartly dressed, handsome man in a black suit stands at the door, holding a tray, looking like he's from a five-star hotel. Not from this place. I wasn't expecting that. He smiles, like he knows exactly what I'm thinking. I can't help but notice his eyes. Piercing eyes. One iris is a stunning blue, and the other is a mesmerizing green. Here's your order, he says. A roasted turkey club sandwich, a side salad, fries, and a Coke. 
I take the tray and pass him a $10 tip. I love your eyes, I say, unable to stop staring at his handsome face. His dark eyebrow raises as his eyes drift to my chest. I love your tattoo. He nods and holds up the money. Thanks for the tip. Enjoy your meal. I close the door with my foot and place the tray on the bed. The sandwich smells good, although anything would after what I've been living on. I lift off the metal plate cover, but a sudden stinging pain ripples across my chest, making me fall onto the bed. It's like I've been scolded by hot water. Staggering from the bed, I make my way into the bathroom. It's the tattoo. My chest feels like it's on fire. You will burn. Gabriel's warning flashes through my mind, as resounding and loud as a hundred fire alarms going off at once. I pull off my blouse and stare at the tattoo in the mirror. The red ink is glowing orange, like it's burning through my skin. I touch it with my finger, and it feels like I've dipped my hand into fire. Ice. Aki once told me she thought ice might stop what happened to those poor patients. She said it might stop the procedure from completing. I run the cold water in the sink and reach for a towel, but the thin fabric bursts into flames as soon as I touch it. Instinctively, I drop it in the sink, and the running water puts out the flames. Leaning as low as I can, I splash cold water over my chest, my vision blurred by smoke from the extinguished fire, but the water's not enough to soothe the searing pain. I strip off all my clothes and turn on the shower, setting it to the coldest temperature possible. I jump in and let the freezing cold water run down my chest. The burn begins to fade, slowly but blessedly. Shivering and covered in goosebumps, I allow the water to run over every inch of my naked body until I'm numb and aching with cold. I tentatively reach for a towel again, my dripping arm leaving a trail of water across the floor. Thankfully, this time there's no flame, but I can smell smoke. I quickly dry myself, slip on my clothes, and return to the other room. There's nothing on fire in here. The smoke seems to be coming from the corridor outside. I look around and realize it's drifting under the door. A scream, then another. The fire alarm suddenly blasts through the room. I press my hands to my ears to block the sound as much as possible, but the screeching, piercing tones still make me dizzy. Panicking, I grasp Gabriel's phone in my purse and then reach for the door handle. As I pull open the door, plumes of smoke drift in. It's like the entire top floor is on fire. Get to the fire safety point, someone shouts as they run past. Outside, in the parking lot. I run after them, following them through the smoke and down the stairs of the parking lot, where a crowd of people stand in all manner of undress. One woman is wrapped in just a towel. If the alarm had gone off a few seconds earlier, that would have been me. I'm suddenly aware of my heart. It's beating like a drum against my still numb skin. It feels like it will explode any minute, like it'll burst like a firecracker. Was that me? Did I cause the fire? Was it my tattoo? You will burn. Gabriel's warning won't leave my mind. I knew at the time it was likely more than just a threat, that it was a real, unstoppable consequence for going back on my contract. But a small part of me had hoped that I was wrong, that I had been poisoned by that prison until I could only imagine the darkest of outcomes. But now, that hope is dead. One thing is for sure. I can't stay here. I back away through the parking lot, staring at the flames as they rip across the top floor of the Myatt Hotel. The tattoo starts to burn again. I need to find another room. I need a cold bath. And fast. Monday, July 16th, 2018. 510, GMT-5, Christy Walsh, The Grand View, Orlando. I climb out of the bath, my skin frozen from the ice-cold water. It's the only way to control the tattoo when it happens. I've had seven cold baths since checking in, and during the last one, it took longer for the burning pain to fade. 
I wrap a towel around myself and walk slowly back into the other room. Another room and another hotel. I just hope no one got hurt in the fire. The AC is turned down as low as it will go, and I have the blackout curtains drawn to keep out any heat that could slip inside. I sand over the cold air, letting it blast me. If I'm shivering painfully, then at least I'm not burning. I glance over at the TV. I've had the local news on since I checked in, but, bizarrely, there's been no story about the fire at the Mayad Hotel. I fall back onto the bed, letting the towel fall away so I can feel around the tattoo on my chest. My skin is still ice cold, which is a good sign. I lay there, naked on the bed, letting the cold AC blow across my damp skin. Goosebumps feel like my only friends at the moment. Right, I can't delay it any longer. I sit up, reach for my purse, and take out the ripped piece of paper with Cassie Collins' number on it. Is my mind numb from the freezing AC, or numb from what I'm about to do? I shake my head to clear my thoughts, my body shivering so hard that I can barely read what's on the trembling paper. I take a deep breath, steadying myself, and reach for the old phone on the bedside table. My shaking finger dials the number of the only person who can help, though I'm not daft as to how unlikely it is I will succeed. I don't even know if she'll take my call. I hope you are ready for the story of a lifetime, I whisper as her phone rings. Continued in Cassie Collins and the Magic Hearts, available as a new expanded edition novel, featuring an additional 23 new chapters exploring the story from a different point of view. A phone call from a dead movie star promising the story of a lifetime is far too great an opportunity to turn down, right? My life is like a roller coaster. Theme parks by day, magic and mystery by night. My name is Cassie Collins, your favorite theme park blogger, and this is the week my whole world changed. This novel will give you that roller coaster thrill ride of fast-paced event TV, twists and turns that will not only keep you on the edge of your seat, but have you clinging to it for dear life. The expanded edition includes Cassie Collins and the Magic Hearts, previously available as 10 separate books, The Forsetti Records, 23 new chapters exploring the story from a different point of view. Cassie Collins and the Wild Shamrock, a prequel story. Available as an ebook and for the first time in print. You can get it from here, www.themeparkmysteries.com. A message from the authors. If you enjoyed this prequel story, we would be so grateful if you could spend a few minutes leaving a review on the page where you downloaded it from. Your help in spreading the word about our theme park mysteries is much appreciated, and your review will make a huge difference in helping new readers and listeners find this series. About D.B. Green. D.B. Green was born and raised in Yorkshire, England. He writes serial print drama, fantasy thrillers with a cliffhanger twist. He is a worldwide best-selling author of stories from his own affinity verse, and he likes to ask one question. Do you believe in magic? Connect with D.B. Green. Instagram http colon slash slash o hyphen h hyphen p dot com slash s slash db green instagram facebook http colon slash slash o hyphen h hyphen p dot com slash s slash db green facebook youtube http colon slash slash o hyphen h hyphen p dot com slash s slash db green youtube twitter at d underscore b underscore green for promotions and release dates of upcoming books sign up for the latest news here
www.db-green.com readers. About A.K. Stein. A.K. Stein lives on Long Island, New York, where she works as a writer and editor. She started telling stories at the age of two and has been in love with the magic of words ever since. She's written numerous short stories and poems and has edited countless works of both nonfiction and fiction, including D.B. Green's groundbreaking Meridia Falls series. Her blog, Manic Muse, focuses on how to stay creative and positive. Connect with A.K. Stein. Instagram, http colon slash slash o hyphen h hyphen p dot com slash s slash A.K. Stein Instagram. Facebook, http colon slash slash o hyphen h hyphen p dot com slash s slash A.K. Stein Facebook. Twitter, at Amanda K. Stein. Website, www.manicmuse.com. That's M-A-N-I-K-M-U-S-E. This has been Cassie Collins and the Wild Shamrock, an Affinityverse story. A Theme Park Mysteries Series 1 prequel. Written by D.B. Green and A.K. Stein. Narrated by Amanda K. Stein. Copyright 2018 by D.B. Green and A.K. Stein. Production copyright 2018 by D.B. Green and A.K. Stein.